The Israelites beg Moses to be their mediator before God because they are afraid of God. St. Paul says to serve the Lord without distraction, and Jesus confronts a demon. Welcome to the Scripture Commentary Series. Today, I am discussing the readings for the fourth Sunday of Ordinary Time. Remember to like, comment, share, subscribe, review, leave a comment, do all the things. Help me to fight and appease the fickle and pernicious algorithm gods. Also, you can ask me a question and I will answer it on the podcast. You can ask me by emailing me at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. So our first reading comes from Deuteronomy 18. And I think we need to expand and comment on Deuteronomy 18 in general, not just this particular passage, but even a little bit into Exodus 20, because in our passage today, it it references a time to Exodus 20. So in Deuteronomy 18, Moses is talking about the law for priests and for prophets. Before discussing the role of the prophets or how to discern a real prophet. He goes a little bit into techniques that are employed by paganism or by the surrounding nations to obtain divine oracles. And these practices of the pagan nations are not to be practiced by Israel. These are ways in which the pagans try to discern the voice of their gods, but it's not the way that Israel will try to discern the voice of their God. So these are banned practices that kind of fall generally into the category of human wisdom and ingenuity, that these are humans trying to grasp at divine oracles as opposed to the prophet who is supposed to receive divine oracles from God. So in the greater context, again, this is what we get from just a few verses into Deuteronomy 18. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to imitate the abominations of the nations there. Let there not be found among you anyone who uses their son or daughter, or causes their son or daughter to pass through the fire, or practice divinization. Nor let there be anyone who goes to a soothsayer or a sorcerer, who casts spells, consults spirits and ghosts, who seeks oracles from the dead. Although the nations among whom you are about to dispossess their land listen to their soothsayers and diviners, the Lord your God will not permit you to do so. So instead of listening to these sorcerers and soothsayers and diviners, as Moses says, instead they are to listen to their prophets, that the prophets are going to be the the medium of revelation. You listen to the voice of God through the prophets, not humans pretending to be God. So Moses says in our, in our passage today, a prophet like me will the Lord your God raise up among your kin. To him you shall listen. So Moses here is presenting himself as the kind of proto-prophet. So when Moses says that a prophet like me will arise, what does this mean? So we could kind of talk a little bit about what what are prophets. And a prophet obviously is, is not someone who necessarily tells the future. Or even it's not even one who necessarily 
says anything. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, when he's kind of commenting on the prophets, notes that it comes from seer, and that a seer is someone who sees. So it's, a prophet is not necessarily one who makes statements about the future, but in a sense, one who sees the future. There's, there's something about the prophet that he has supernatural sight, and he can see things from a distance spiritually. When Moses says that there, were, that there will be a prophet like him, what he's saying is that there, there will be one who, who can kind of speak in the voice of God, but also one who can discern greatly into the future and can tell you things about uh, that. He can tell you about things that are not immediately seen, but things that are maybe on the horizon. So Moses is a type of proto-prophet because he's a redeemer and he's an intercessor. Those are two very important qualities of Moses. So someone, the prophet that's going to come, is going to be someone who is like him as a redeemer. Uh, Moses leads the people, the Israelites, from Egypt into the promised land. So he has sort of a foreshadowing of, of Christ who will lead people from sin, slavery. That's uh, Egypt is always a symbol and a reminder of slavery and of sin, idolatry. So Christ will lead you from that land into the promised land of heaven in the same way as Moses led the Israelites from the land of slavery in Egypt to the promised land. Also, this prophet who is to come will be a great intercessor. You think of all the times when the Israelites tried God, they, they tempted God, and they, they, they sinned against God, and yet Moses always stood in the breach. He always stood as a mediator between the Israelites and God as a, as a way to ask forgiveness for the Israelites from God. Going on in our passage today, this is exactly what you requested of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let us not again hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, lest we die. So this is a reference to Exodus 20, when Moses says, this is from Exodus 20, now all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the blast of the fire and the smoke and the mountain smoking. They became afraid and trembled. So they took up a position farther away and said to Moses, speak to us and we will listen but do not let God speak to us or we shall die. Moses answered, do not be afraid for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. So the people remained at a distance while Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. So there's a a lot of ideas here. There's a lot of unpacking going on. We hear the idea that Moses is the one who approaches God. Again, the idea of a prophet, someone who sees from a distance that which is far off as close. So kind of in a a physical proximity, Moses draws close to God. This is a a, perhaps a physical symbol for something spiritual that the the prophet is one who experiences God as close. Uh, The prophet is one who experiences God uh, more immediately. We also have this idea that uh, of hearing the voice of God, this is going to become a very important theme for our readings that the people 
don't want to hear the voice of God, actually. They want to hear Moses' voice speaking through him because of God's terrible might. But Moses tries to tell the people that the terrible might that they're seeing is to put fear upon upon the people so they, they don't sin. This is uh, one of the types of fear we've talked about before, This, at least an imperfect fear that we, we maybe don't sin because we, we love God, but we don't sin because we're afraid of punishment. So God is trying to instill at least this basic fear into them that remember kind of my terrible might so that you may not continue to sin. And I think all the cosmic events that surround this revelation are supposed to be not just displays of God's power, but also displays that he is the master of the cosmos, that all these cosmic elements of lightning and fire and smoke and thunder, he's showing them that he is the Lord of all things. And as the Lord of all things, there's a certain reverential fear that God is deserved. And so that's what he's trying to instill upon them. Don't tempt me. I'm the one who's testing you now to, to, to prove your love, but you're not the one who's to test me. That'll become an important idea. So pin that, the idea of, of Israel testing God. So in, even in the greater context of Exodus 20, you have the idea of this is where we get the first set of commandments, the, the Ten Commandments that become about idols and altars. So all throughout our passage today, what God is, God is trying to set up a dichotomy that there is through Moses, that there are the pagan nations that you're going to go into, and they try to hear the voice of God through human means, through false means, through blasphemy, really. And you are not to be like them. You are, you are to be the people I have called you to be, and you are to hear the voice of the prophet only. And you're also only to have this law that I'm giving you. So in this revelation is, is the, the law and God's power. And both of these are being communicated through the mediator, Moses. That, that there's this idea of, of uh, Carl Jung sometimes talks about it, that like an unmediated experience of God would destroy us. So we need the veils to help us understand. We need the mediators. We need the distance because too close of a proximity would destroy us. And this is what the Israelites kind of experienced and why they called out to God that we're, we're too afraid to listen to God's voice. Please be a mediator for us. Please kind of mediate this terrible experience. So unlike the other nations that try to grasp at God's voice, it says here that God will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among your kin. I will put my words into his mouth. So the idea is that prophecy, revelation, the law, all these things can only be received by the prophet and by Israel. They cannot be grasped. That one of the problems of of uh, paganism or pagan practices, soothsaying, mediums, all those different things, is that. You try to grasp at what God has not given you. You try to, in some sense, exert a control over God, that God is, is a, a source of magic. That's certainly the difference between classical religion and magic. His magic is always about man's manipulation, man's kind of performance, whereas religion should be a submission through worship and sacrifice to God. So what he's saying here is don't 
be like those other nations that try to grasp at what I have not given them. A little bit further, they're building upon this point. In the greater context of Deuteronomy 18, you have not just the law for the prophets, and you have not just what the pro- what what the nations are not supposed to, or, or what Israel is not supposed to do. You also have a little bit of commentary on the Levitical priesthood. So what the t- entire context of Deuteronomy 18 is trying to say is that we need a priest who will present us before God, but we also need a prophet who will represent God before us. That is sort of the archetypal split. I'm going to get into this more once we get to the gospel, but there's an archetypal split between the priest as such and the prophet as such. The prophet is the one who shows us God, and the priest is the one who presents us before God. The the priest, again, archetypally speaking, does not necessarily represent the voice of God as much as the prophet does. I'm going to get into that later. But for now, let's keep talking about uh, this, this kind of idea of, of listening to God's voice and not tempting God. With that in mind, we can move to the psalm. So the psalm is Psalm 19, I'm sorry, Psalm 95, which is a very popular psalm. If you pray the divine office, you pray this every day in the invitatory. So the refrain of the psalm is, if today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. The notion of today is very important. It's this this idea of an eternal now, an eternal present moment, that every moment is is the the time to pray. The prayer is meant to be a a present encounter. That it's not we're not to praise God tomorrow. We're not to you know not supposed to have praised Him yesterday, but today in this moment, now hear His voice. Is now is a good time to hear His voice. So we can break up the responsorial psalm in two parts. The first part is, I think, what the proper attitude towards God is, the proper attitude of adoration. So we have sing joyfully to the Lord, come into his presence, bow down and worship, kneel before the Lord our maker. He guides us like a shepherd guides his flock. All of this is about adoration as the the first attitude of man acknowledging that he is a creature, he is a creature before his creator, and in all this language exalts the greatness of the Lord who made, who made us, and kind of the almighty power by which he saves us. So, in adoration, we acknowledge the great power of God, the great goodness of God, and our dependence upon Him. The second part of the psalm recounts two events from the Pentateuch. The first reading in the psalm, I feel like there's a lot of unpacking we have to do. There's a lot of references to other parts of the Old Testament. So in order to really understand it, I feel like we have to kind of break it apart. So the second part of the psalm references two moments at Meribah and Massa. These are also kind of play on words, scholars say, of, of the Hebrew, which means to, to test. One place means to test and quarrel. Another place means to kind of contend with the Lord. So what happened at Meribah? Meribah is in Numbers 20, and it's a peculiar or strange event uh, that the people complain against God and against Moses, and they say they have no water. 
So Moses is instructed to speak to the rock and to command the rock to bring forth water. But instead, he strikes the rock twice with his rod, and this angers God. What the, the common interpretation of what happens here when Moses is commanded to, to speak, instead he strikes the rock, and it, this upsets God. In fact, this is why Moses can't go into the promised land. He dies on the threshold of the, of the promised land in Deuteronomy. The interpretation here is that Moses is condemned because he did not trust God, but relied on his own wisdom and ingenuity. That sounds familiar. He didn't listen to the voice of God. Instead, he, he hardened his heart. He, he didn't listen to God. He listened to himself. So it's the idea that's working back here is that God said that something would come about in a particular way. In a particular way. God said to Moses, water will come forth from the rock by my word. But Moses said, consciously or unconsciously, that can't happen, that I will have to strike the rock and make this happen. This is, in a sense, harkening to the primordial sin of Adam and Eve, that God said that do not eat of the fruit of the tree or else you'll die. And the serpent takes that and says, did God really, did, did God really mean that? And here, Moses is doing the same thing. God said, if I do this, if I speak to the rock, water will, will come forth. Did he really mean that? So he puts God to the test, and, you know, either consciously or unconsciously. That's what it says in our psalm. You know, oh, today they would hear his voice. Harden not your hearts as at Meribah and on the day of Manasseh in the desert where your fathers tempted me. They tested me, though they had seen all of my works." So despite all the wonderful events that, has, that have happened leading up to Meribah, he still does not trust God. Instead, he tempts God by saying, I'm going to do this on, I'm going to bring forth water on my own terms, not what you told me. The other event, Massa, this happens in Exodus 17. Again, water is the issue. They don't have water. But this time is the reverse, it seems. Moses is to go to the rock and strike it with a rod, and the water will come forth. So he's not instructed to, to speak to the rock this time. He strikes it. Maybe that's why he, he, you know, later on in the book of Numbers, he, he strikes it. But the issue is not Moses in this, in, at Massa, it's the people. But so water comes forth after he strikes the rock. And Moses asks the people, is God present among us or not? And this is the heart of what it means to test God is, is God among us or not? If he is, then he can perform these miracles. If he's not, then it's, it's up to us. So tempting God is to say, is to say, I have power over him, or there's some way in which I can manipulate. If you think of temptation as always the feeling of having control over someone, having power over someone, or in some way manipulating them to do what you want. But here, Moses is saying, if you, you realize that God is among us, then we, we should not tempt, tempt him. But the people don't believe in God's word. They don't believe in his voice. They, they think that God has abandoned them in the wilderness, and it's up to them. Again, that goes back all the way to what we were talking about in the first reading about the pagan nations and what they do. They don't believe God can speak. So therefore, they turn to their own wisdom and their own practices of soothsaying and sorcery to bring about the voice of God. 
So instead of having the attitude of adoration, of not testing God, instead, they don't believe God is among us and they don't believe God can do what he said. So they tempt him. And tempting God is this putting his goodness and his power to the test. And this is, again, I think tempting God is coupled with disobedience as sort of the primordial sin, the first sin of Adam and Eve. You have Satan who who said to Adam and Eve in the garden that this, that this shall not happen to you, that God, don't trust God's word, trust my word. And then later you have Satan in the temple with Jesus even saying the same thing, you know, testing God, you know, if you're the son of man, throw yourself down from here. If you're the if you're the son of God, sorry, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple. If you're the son of God, change these rocks. So there's some gesture or word or temptation to get God to act in a certain way. But as Christ says to Satan, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That this is what the Israelites failed to do. The challenge contained in such tempting of God kind of wounds our respect for our Creator and Lord. Again, the first half of that psalm was talking about bowing down and and worshiping and giving God you know praise. But now, through tempting, you're actually doing the exact opposite. Instead of loving God and trusting His divine providence, we put His love to the test and we put His providence to the test. So we can move on to the second reading, which is building off of the reading we had last week. Again, the the second reading in Sundays. It's on a cycle, so we usually usually read straight through the letter. There's usually sometimes some parts that are cut out or chopped up a bit, but St. Paul is building on last week. So last week he talked a little bit about kind of this undivided focus on God. The new age of Christ had come, time was passing away, so those living in the world should live as though they were not living in the world. So the, the immediate context of this passage is no doubt Paul's consideration of celibacy and virginity for the sake of the kingdom. And he's talking about the benefits of celibacy and virginity because it allows for kind of total dedication to God. That's what St. Paul was talking about a little bit last week. I probably, well, I'm, I'm not going to explore the, the topic of celibacy and virginity for the sake of the kingdom. People want to or want me to, they can email me. Well, we can talk about it, but I'm going to take a guess that this isn't exactly a topic of big interest for most listeners. So what I'm going to suggest instead is that the hermeneutical or interpretive key to our second reading is in the last line of the passage, adherence to the Lord without distraction. That's the key to this passage, that yes, celibacy and virginity help in this total dedication and adherence to the Lord without distraction. But we're going to expand upon that a little bit. So the word distract has it Latin origins. It's a, a combination of, of two words kind of meaning apart and to draw out, to pull. So therefore the kind of literal meaning of distract in, in the Latin context is to draw or to pull apart. So when it's modern, more modern usage, distract means, kind of refers to diverting of one's attention or focus from something. It, it kind of implies a, a mentally, mentally being pulled in, in different directions, leading to a lack of focus or attention. 
So your, your attention is being pulled apart. There's this fundamental meaning of, of diverting our focus, preventing concentration, that we should be concentrated on a particular task, but we're being pulled apart. And St. Paul really drives this home in, in the language he uses. He talks about anxieties, being anxious, divided, things of the world. So he's saying we're being pulled apart. We're divided. We're divided between the things of the world on one hand and the things of the Lord on the other. So let's let's dive into the things of the world, things of God, and distraction. So I submit that the distracted man cannot practice religion. What does that mean? So the virtue of religion does not belong to the theological virtues. So it, so religion, classically speaking, the virtue of religion and faith are not the same thing. The theological virtues have their object or end in God. Faith is oriented towards God. But religion is not does not have its object or end as God. Its object is actually the worship of God indirectly. So it has to do with the things of God. So religion is the virtue which makes us prompt and ready to, to render due worship and sacrifice to God. So it's, it's not concerned directly with our ultimate end, but the things concerned with our ultimate end. So the, the virtue of religion is concerned with worship, sacrifice, growing in holiness and virtue. So if we are crowded with the things of the world, we're, we're not prompt in giving ourselves to God. We're, we're distracted from giving ourselves to God. That we're not thinking of our ultimate end as much. So we have to clear out the distractions or, or reorient or reprioritize, as we talked about last week, so that we can practice the virtue of religion and therefore be ready to give the things that belong to God to God and the things that belong to the world to the world. So in the church's understanding, there's three classes or orders of people. These are usually classified under religious orders. So we have contemplatives, we have the active life, and then we have mixed, which is a mixture of active and contemplative. So we have contemplative orders of friars or religious men and nuns. These are people that their whole lives are oriented towards meditation and contemplation of God. So you might think of the Carthusians who are isolated or Trappist monks or something like that, that they're, they're isolated away to just consider the things of God. Then you have the active, which of course pray, but they're a little bit more um, kind of in the trenches. You might think of like Jesuits or, or Franciscans, sometimes those involved with teaching. But then you have the mixed, which is they're called to both some level of contemplation as well as getting out into the world. I posit to you that the secular, that the average layperson is actually called to this mixed life. That there's no doubt that they, as I said, they're seculars. So they live in the world. They have to deal with things of the world. They have to have jobs. They have to have homes and incomes and families and take care of the things of the world. But that doesn't excuse them from the things of God, from the things of the Lord. If you read recent church documents, especially, you know, Vatican II to now, there is one, a universal call to holiness. And if you read the saints like St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, contemplation is actually the call of all Christians and not just those in the contemplative orders. 
of course, the contemplative orders are called to it in a, in a different way, and that, that is their life. But there is some level of contemplation that the secular, that the layman is called to as well. In order for us to hear the voice of God and to not be distracted between the things of God and the things of the world and hearing God's voice, there needs to be that time of silence in the secular's life. There needs to be that time that, that you give to contemplation or meditation every day, that there is the active part of your life that you have to maintain, that if you're married, that's actually your vocation is to take care of those things. But that never excuses you from contemplation. You are to serve the Lord without distractions. Of course, there's going to be some natural level. But, of, but always, always prioritizing God as the number one thing through contemplation and meditation for as much as you can, you know, the little time you can give every day, I think will properly orient you and clear out these distractions, that your your soul is not divided, as St. Paul says, and you're not anxious about the things of the world. Actually, I think that giving yourself to daily meditation can greatly relieve anxiety. There's even scientific and psychological studies on the benefits of meditation, of reducing stress and anxiety. Of course, that's not why you do it. You do it to give praise to God, to grow in this virtue of religion, but it also has this very natural side effect of relieving anxiety, of letting go of the things of the world so you can give the proper things to God. And I think that makes sense, that if we are constructed to love and serve the Lord, if we're constructed to give worship to God, and when we do that, there's natural good effects, that, that makes sense. I mean, this is perfectly in line with Catholic anthropology and Catholic theology, and especially the Catholic theology of grace, is that from higher things, from spiritual things, descend down into the natural order. That you can have a, you can experience the, the grace and the, 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 the benefits of meditation on a spiritual level of giving God right praise. And when you give God right praise, there's peace in your soul. Now that's a little bit oversimplified. We can get into the the complications of anxiety some other time. But right now, it is perfectly in keeping with our nature that when the higher things are ordered in our life, those effects would be felt at the natural level of things and have an ordering effect on our natural lives. So the secular is not excused from prayer and from contemplation. The secular, I, I would argue, in order to give things their proper due, to give God, to give the things of the Lord to the Lord, and to not feel divided, prayer and contemplation must take first place in our lives. And it must take that first place. That way we can hear the voice of the Lord daily. On hearing the voice of the Lord, let's move to the gospel. So our gospel is coming from the first chapter of St. Mark. In this passage, we have that Jesus entered the synagogue and taught, and the people were astonished by his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The authority that the prophet teaches with, that we talked about in the first reading, comes from God. That God places in the mouth of the prophet the things to say. However, for Christ, since he's you know, the prophet, he's not the archetype of the prophet, he's the fulfillment of the prophet, he doesn't need to receive the word. He is the word. He is authority. So he speaks not referencing anybody, but from his own being. 
And it says here that in their synagogue was a man with an unclean spirit. He cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Let's get into this. So the unclean spirit, this is, uh, instead of calling the man, uh, having this man being possessed with a demon, which is more common to the Greek understanding, it is a kind of a common Jewish designation for a demon is an unclean spirit. But I want to kind of unpack this unclean spirit idea because on one hand, we can say that the spirit is unclean because he made the the person immoral or that the, the demon is just generally unclean insofar as it, he's a he's part of the demonic f- existence and forces as opposed to to God. But the fathers have an interesting ter- interpretation. Some of the fathers say that the demon is called unclean because he made the person possessed unclean. That is to say that just as a demon makes a person deaf, we'd call that a deaf spirit. Someone, a demon who makes someone mute, we'd call a mute spirit, blind, etc. So I, I want to kind of pursue this idea. And I know it might not be technically right, but I, I like the spiritual meaning of this. So let's get into the idea of unclean. So unclean in the Old Testament, simply put, is the opposite of holiness. It represents everything that makes us less than godlike. So uncleanness emanates from that which opposes God. And what makes something unclean is usually linked with death, the, 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 the thing that dominates human existence, the thing that puts an end to all human existence. So the relationship between holiness and uncleanness is that they're totally incompatible, that there, it is not only impossible for anyone or anything to be holy and c- unclean at the same time, no holy object or person is normally permitted to come into contact with that which is unclean. So there, the relationship between unclean and clean or unclean and holiness are, are completely diametrically opposed. In a sense, there is no relationship. They're they're completely opposing forces in this, in this, in in the understanding of the Old Testament. So why 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 do I bring this up? In our passage, it says. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The Greek is a little bit more clumsy or less idiomatic, it's, but it's illuminating. And the Greek has something more like, what do we have in common, Jesus? And if we think back to our brief discussion on holiness and cleanliness, the answer is, there is nothing in common. What, what do we have in common? What does the unclean spirit of the demonic and Jesus, the Holy One, what do they have in common? The answer is nothing. There is no relationship. There's no commonality between unholy and holy or the unclean and holy. There can be, there can be nothing in between them. So when he says, have you come to destroy us? The answer in some sense is yes. Christ has come to destroy the unclean spirit. And perhaps this unclean spirit, this man who was possessed was living in the community for a while, but they didn't know until the, the true holiness of, of God walks in, until Christ, holiness incarnate, co- show, comes up 
or comes into the, the synagogue and sort of reveals the uncleanness of the spirit. And that spirit cries out immediately because they can't exist together. The holiness of God and the uncleanness of the demonic cannot coexist. So Christ says to him, quiet, come out of him. So obviously they come out of him, a sign of exorcism. But you know why the quiet? Why does he tell the, the unclean spirit to be quiet? Because it's interesting that the demon was actually speaking truth about Christ. He said, are you the holy? You know, we know who you are. You're the holy one. That's true. It's interesting. The fathers also comment on this and say that Christ commanded him to be silent, lest he mix falsehood with truth. And so that the testimony of Christ would be confused. And I think that's the nature of the, the demonic is that it's not just false because that's, that's, that's easy enough when something is so patently false, maybe that's, that's easy enough to disprove, but it's this idea that there's a mixture of truth and falsity. That's, it's, this is, you know, how Peterson will say, uh, ideologies work. Peterson calls ideologies half truths you know, that they, 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 they get at something but they don't show you the whole picture or they make one piece the whole picture. So the demon here is speaking a half truth in the minds of the fathers. In a sense, he's right to call Jesus the Holy One of God. But then he says here, have you come to destroy us? Which again, Christ has come to destroy evil. But what is this us? That there, there, might, there might be this idea here that Christ has come to destroy everything or that the demonic only can recognize his presence. And what Christ is saying is that it's not, you are correct that I'm the Holy One, but it's not just the demonic that gives me testimony. If that's true, then we have a problem. And in fact, we can even go back to the first reading on this and say that the demonic here is speaking um, almost as a prophet, but... But he was not commanded to speak as a prophet, as, as the, the first reading says that the prophet should speak only what God gives them to say, and that anyone who speaks in the, the name of a different God is committing blasphemy. Here, the, the demon is speaking not what God commanded him to speak, but also not in the voice of God, but in the voice of the demonic. So Christ has to, to quiet that, that it's not just the demonic that gives him testimony and it and this demon does not have the authority to proclaim Christ. So we again we we see the power of the voice of God that it's through just his voice he says come out of him and the voice and and the demon leaves. So we hear in the beginning of the the passage that he's teaching the people and they're astonished by his authority. But then when he performs the exorcism it says the unclean spirit convulsed came out of him and the people say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So it's, again, we go back to this idea of hearing the voice of God, but as opposed to in the first reading, the people heard the voice of God and they were afraid and they, and they, they wanted to be away from, from the voice and they wanted a mediator. Now there's this sense that the voice has become incarnate, the word of God that they heard the Israelites heard on Mount Horeb is now incarnated in Christ. And there's a approachability about it. I don't know. There's 
you know, the, the, in the first reading, they wanted to get away, but now they want to approach it. There's now that the word is in, is clothed not in kind of the the glory of the cosmic elements, but in the ordinary human existence. Then people want to draw near. That this is the love of God being shown. That He's willing to kind of descend in human form and to become approachable. He He wants to draw us to Himself by the means we understand. I think there's further connections to the first reading. So in the first reading, Moses foretells that there's a prophet coming. Obviously, we know that prophet is Christ. But there's something interesting. Christ caused, as we know, many astonishments and numerous questions about his person and his activity. Who is Jesus? You know, at times, he's God's elect. At other times, he's an agent of the devil. You know, he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Is he kind of a teacher of wisdom or is he a seducer? But one thing that people don't really ask about him is if he's a priest. They often frame Christ as a prophet and Christ himself frames himself more as a prophet. And this might seem odd to us Christians because, you know, we now see Christ as both priest and prophet. And when we think of exorcisms, we think of, you know, exorcist movies, we think of the Catholic priest, right? That's the archetypal exorcist is the Catholic priest, but that's because the Catholic priest participates in the priesthood of Christ and Christ and the ministry of Christ and Christ integrates both the prophet and the priest. But I'm going to submit something to you that might be, that might be controversial. But I posit to you that archetypally speaking, it belongs to the prophet to cast out demons. Again, this goes back to the separation that I talked about earlier from uh, Deuteronomy 18, that archetypally speaking, the priest belongs to the order of the law, to the cultic practice, to representing people to God. The, the priest brings the sacrifice of the people to God, but the prophet is the voice of God. He's the one who represents God. And now things are a little different in, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant priesthood. But again, just speaking archetypally at this point, that prophets are the ones who cast out demons. What, what's my proof from this? What's my proof for positing this to you? Well, if you look at the Old Testament, who are the ones that commit, who are the ones that perform miracles? The prophets. We think of a prophet like Elijah and, and his disciples. Now, they don't perform miracles of exorcisms. That's true. But he does practice power over the elements, or he and his disciples practice power over the elements. So you have the raising of the dead. You have the washing of Naaman in and the, the river. You have these kind of forces that could be spiritual of death and disease and decay and hunger and famine that the prophets have power over. This, to me is kind of an Old Testament symbol that the prophets are the one who have power over the demonic forces. So the priests are, are not invested with the same kind of authority, it seems. The priests are responsible for carrying out the rituals and the ceremonies, and their, their priestly focus is mainly centered on kind of sacrifice and purification, you know, maintaining the, the sanctity of the temple. But prophets like Elijah and Elisha are performing different miracles of healing the sick, even raising the dead. 
although, again, these acts aren't explicitly about exorcism, they do represent power over the forces of nature that might be seen as demonic. Now, a passage from not from Scripture we could get into. We might think of someone like Gandalf, right? Gandalf is the archetypal prophet. He's an advisor. He anoints and crowns the king. But he also performs exorcisms that, although the, the king, like Aragorn, doesn't do that. And the, the priest, someone like Frodo, doesn't do that. But it's the prophet who does. It's the prophet, really, who performs these miracles because he's invested with the voice of God, that he speaks in the voice of God in a way that the priests do not. Again, a little confusing for us in our New Testament understanding, but in the Old Testament understanding, priests do not have that voice of God in the same way that prophets do. Prophets are invested with the voice of God to perform miracles. So that brings us to our gospel, that Christ casts out demons with the voice of God by God's power. And he's in a more prophetic line in this moment than he is in the line of priests. In this moment, he's acting as the prophet foretold by Moses, whose voice comes from himself, that he speaks in the, in, in the place of God because he is God. So Christ is the one who makes real realizes the prophetic tradition, that he's not just a, a seer or, or a symbol of prophets, but that he fulfills the prophets. And even beyond that, he, is, he doesn't just fulfill the content of the Old Testament, but its mode of revelation. So no longer is the word of God you know, merely put in the mouths of men and, and put like into their flesh, but in, in fact, the the word of God becomes human flesh, that it becomes a, a person. So Christ is obviously not a prophet among prophets, but he is he's the prophet. He's actually the pattern from which all other prophets participated in, in some way. So now to, to hear the voice of God is to hear the, the voice of Christ. This is what uh, the letter to the Hebrews says, that God spoke to us in many and varied ways, but in this last age, he's spoken to us through his son. That if you want to hear the voice of the Lord today, if you, if you want to clear out the distractions and if you want to contemplate, listen to the voice of Christ and to remember that the voice of Christ speaks principally in the scriptures. That if there's any place to try to make time for the things of God and to clear away the things of the world, it's with meditation and scripture. That's where the Logos, the incarnate word of God speaks to us most clearly. And remember that everyone is called to contemplation. Everybody's called to, to listen to the voice of God every day. Well, that's where I will leave us for now. Remember, if there's anything you want me to talk about, anything you want me to answer, anything you want me to expand upon, you can email me at basicallyrelatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I will see you next week.